0: Rebecca, and this is <laughs> just, just googly things. things. Ooh. Oh, I always <laughs> what type of intro. Was that? I don't know. You like gave up way oh, through. Oh yeah, I,
1: I I don't know. I like clocked out. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Let's let Rebecca. Do
0: we the just with this. we did a lot of research for this episode. Insane. A lot, a lot. Um, we got a lot of suggestions from you guys this past week. But we decided to go a little different route this time and talk about cults.
1: Yay, my favorite! Yes. (laughs) I
0: mean, who doesn't love watching cult documentaries on Netflix and HBO, right? Honestly, it's one of my favorite things. It's addicting. Right? It's insane. And I, I always love looking at the psychology of it, why these people get put into these situations that from a from a bystander's point of view you're like what's wrong with you like obviously there's something messed up with this this guy's crazy oh no baby what is you doing <laughs> literally but um these these people that are these cult leaders you notice a pattern they have messed up past they're mm-hmm. they're very smart they're very yeah. smart people and they take advantage of that and they yeah. manipulate people that are desperate that yeah, are right? looking for something to believe in yeah. and look for that guidance yeah, in their life. Yeah, you see that a lot
1: with oh I lost my husband and then I found and you're like or you know, oh I you know like my family there's one I watched we'll, we'll get into that yeah. later. But yeah, you're right. The vulnerable people mm-hmm. and they just kind of take them and turn them into what they want to be.
0: Yeah. So um we're going to be talking about several famous cult uh cult cases that um, are in US history. Yours are all in the United States, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, by, uh, so I just thought we'd start with the definition of what a cult is. Go and for it. <laughs> <laughs> by my Google research, a cult by definition is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward a particular figure or object. The second definition is a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. You'll see in a lot of our stories, there are a lot more than just a small group of people. They can go into like the hundreds of thousands. Um, And the third one is a misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular person or thing. Now, I feel like the third definition is more relative to the stories we're going to be talking about. I think that's the best way of describing it. Yeah. Yeah. And over the course of history, there have been thousands upon thousands of cults, some still that are popular to this day. Uh, so I thought we'd start off with Jonestown. Let's do it. All right. So to give you an idea of how huge the tragedy at Jonestown was, oh, yeah, okay, it this is) A little intense guys yeah oh yeah we should probably put out there that if you have sensitive stomachs <laughs> sensitive emotions this may not be the best episode for you to listen yeah. to uh go watch our jersey devil episode that was, fun. <laughs> that
1: <laughs> but was a little we'll more lighthearted.
0: But, then- <laughs> but anyway um so to give you an idea of how huge the tragedy was it had been marked the single largest loss of u.s Civilian lives in a non-natural disaster up until the terrorist attacks on September 11th, Holy 2001. Shit. So, like, think of that, because thousands of people died in 9/11. Um, I were yeah. How old were you when 9/11? Happened?
1: 9/11. I was in pre-K. So okay, I was, I was about, in kindergarten. I was like yeah, like five. Yeah,
0: but Makes I sense. still remember Me it too. well, and I remember because. Where I lived was so close. I mean, from my bedroom, you could see the New York skyline. Same. And I remember yeah. that night I looked out and you could not see it. It looked like fog, but it was just all the smoke. And- Dude,
1: I thought 9-11 was a party at my house. Are you serious? Because all my neighbors came over to watch the news, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's the same thing. You could see where we live in Jersey. We live in North Jersey. And I'm like 12 miles from Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um you probably were about the same. Yeah. So, yeah, you could, like, see them from where my dad's office was in the attic or my mom's at- office at the time. And I was five, and I remember that I didn't have to go to school that day. Yeah. And we picked my brother up from school.
0: Yeah, I remember I got picked up. Yeah.
1: And my and my mom took us to CVS, mm-hmm. at least me, and... I remember going, and she was like, "Lily, pick out a bunch of snacks and get activities." And you know, like those—they um, were like kind of like they're kind of like felt, and then there's plastic, and yes. you color them in. I remember getting a bunch of those, and those were my favorite. And it was my mom, my dad. My dad actually saw the second plane hit really from his office. Yeah, and I um, trying to think. So I was yeah, I was in kindergarten, and my neighbors came over, and their hu- and the dad worked in the city. And my mom's friend came. So it was like like all my friends. Yeah. And they were like, kids, stay in the basement. I think the oldest one of us was in fourth grade mm-hmm. or fifth grade. So like she knew what was going on. Yeah, I didn't. But I remember thinking, wow, what, what a weird night to have a party. On a school night. Because that was the same group we celebrate New Year's Eve with. Oh, okay. And I was like... And I remember thinking it was a party because I specifically remember my parents saying, you stay downstairs, like Emma's in charge, do not come upstairs. I was like, that's weird. Yeah. And I I don't know why I remember, but I just remember just the feeling yeah. of being uneasy. And But, you know, I'm a kid, so I didn't mm-hmm. know. I was like, wow, you know, why is everyone over? Whatever. Yeah. And, Looking back, I'm like, holy shit, that was 9-11. I couldn't you?
0: even imagine being a parent during that time where we were. Um, and I mean, I I remember, as graphic as this sounds, I remember the next day, it smelled so bad. Yeah. And that was because of all the burning and yeah. everything like that. And the wind, it, it brought it over to us. And yeah. I remember my mom was just like, oh, yeah, no, it was just like a fire or something like that. But like, you know, as I grew up and we would talk about it, she'd be like, yeah, like, you yeah. smell what happened, and yeah. I was like, "Holy crap!" Like, yeah. and it's crazy because you know where we are locally. There are people that you probably know that I know. I know that family, fathers, uncles have yeah. passed away. That's what my mom the-
1: said when she walked. My brother, we he went to school around the corner, and she said, "Now this is really sad." But she said when she went to bring my brother up, she thought, "Holy shit, there are kids in this building whose parents aren't coming home tonight."
0: Yeah, I just got goosebumps. goosebumps. Yeah. I know it's yeah. Uh, all right. So enough of that. Yeah, okay. So that, we're not talking about 9-11. Jesus okay. Christ. Yeah. Uh, I turned really... Okay. Sorry, guys. So, um, Jonestown.
1: All right. The <laughs> so, so,
0: <something, laughs> let's do some light shit. Let's go to Jonestown. The second Jones most tragic thing. <laughs> so right. the man behind the tragedy, his name is Jim Jones, was born on May 31st, 1931 in rural Indiana. And in the early 1950s, he began working as a self-ordained Christian minister in small churches. And in order to raise money to start a church of his own, he, um, he tried various ventures, including <laughs> – hear this – including selling live monkeys door-to-door. What? <laughs> yeah. Live monkeys, monkeys door-to-door. To door. I, I read that a couple times myself. I thought it was a typo, but it was not. Nope. So then, eventually, I guess he sold enough monkeys and opened (laughs) up his first people's temple church in Indianapolis in the mid-1950s. His congregation was racially integrated, which was something that was really unusual at that time, especially in a Midwestern church. All right, well, they got that going for them. Yeah, go equality, right? Yeah, wahoo, Mr. Jones. (laughs) (laughs) At least you did something right there. Yeah, right? In the mid-1960s, Jones moved his small congregation to Northern California, settling first in the Redwood Valley in... Uh, Mendocino County, and in the early nineteen seventies, the ambitious preacher relocated his organization's headquarters to San Fran, and also opened a temple in Los Angeles. So it seems like oh, it took it took some time, but eventually it just like blew up uh, okay. like the next few years. In San Fran, he became a very powerful figure, and it looked like his church was. For the better of the people, and he was favored by public officials and the media. By you know, he donated tons of money to numerous charitable causes and delivered votes for various politicians at election time. And the people's uh, the people's temple ran social and medical programs for the needy, including a free dining hall, drug rehabilitation, and legal aid services. So it looked like a legit church, like what a church is supposed to be meant for. That's how you that's how you draw them in. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because if you're like, oh, we're all gonna move away
1: and, like, you know, drink poison? Like, come on in, you know? You got to have the... You got to have a good... Fit, that's a, a fake friend. That's, that's like, <laughs> the one girl in high school who was really nice, and then she, like, put you down. you're like, oh, don't worry, someone will like you one day. Like, that's Jim Jones.
0: Wow, that seems really personal, <laughs> No comment. <laughs> okay, keep going. <laughs> All right. Jones' message of social equality and racial justice attracted a diverse group of followers, including idealistic young people who wanted to do something mean- meaningful with their lives. And as Jones' congregation grew, it um, estimates the member size at 20,000. Negative reports began to surface about the man um, referred to as father by his followers. Former members described being forced to give up their belongings, homes, and like, uh, other things that may be beneficial. To the church and to him, and they even took custody of their children. Like the church took custody yeah. of these people's children, and they were they told of being um, they were told of being subjected to beatings and um, said Jones staged fake cancer healings. So faced with all this unflattering media attention and investigation. Pa- uh, Jones got extremely paranoid and often wore dark sunglasses and traveled with bodyguards, and mm-hmm. then invited his congregation to move with him to Guyana, where he promised them they would build a socialist utopia in 1974. So by then, 1977, Jones and more than 1,000 temple members moved to Guyana. However, Jonestown did not turn out to be the paradise their leader <laughs> had promised. So the temple members worked long days in the fields and were subjected to harsh punishments if they questioned Joan's authority. Their passports um, were taken so they couldn't leave and medications were confiscated and they were plagued by mosquitoes and tropical diseases. Armed guards patrolled the jungle compound and their letters and phone calls were censored. So people from in the outside world really had no idea what was going on in this. I mean, I can't even imagine how scary that is for them. Or if these people at this point even knew what was really going on because they were so brainwashed by this guy. Um, Jones, who by then was declining in mental health and was addicted to drugs, had his own throne in the compound's main pavilion and compared himself to Vladimir Lenin, who was a Russian revolutionary politician and political theorist and under his administration, Russia and then the wider Soviet Union became a one-party communist state governed by the Russian, Russian Communist Party. And he also compared himself to Jesus Christ. Oh, shit. Well, yeah. you know
1: what they say Lenin in the streets, Dostoevsky in the sheets. <laughs> that, that's a. Katya, I love you. No, it's a drag queen quote. But is I it had really? To, yeah. So she's like, uh, she, like, she speaks Russian, and she's like, Lenin in the streets, Dostoevsky in the sheets. Baby, are you ready for this Cold War? <laughs> Is that for RuPaul? Yeah, I love that. Oh my god, I need to catch up red, on that show. I'm the bright red scare with the long
0: blonde hair. I always keep them back. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> All right, next episode, Drag Queen's yes. of Lily Baldasari. Yes.
1: We're gonna tag her in and hope <laughs> she watches it.
0: All right, continue. All right. So Leah Ryan, which was a US representative from California, heard some of his constituents um, that their family members were people being held against their will at Jonestown and decided to go there to investigate the matter. Ryan arrived in Guyana in November 1978 with a group of uh, news reporters, photographers, along with concerned relatives of some of the People's Temple members. And on November 17th, the congressmen and reporters were welcomed to the Jonestown compound to their surprise with a dinner and evening of entertainment. Jones even agreed to meet with reporters. However, during the visit, some People's Temple members asked Ryan's group to help them get out of Jonestown. Like, they were like, dude, like... This is not what they're making this out to be. Yeah. Like, please, like, we're suffering here. So on November 18th, Ryan and his group, which also included a small um, contingent of people, People's Temple defectors, left Jonestown. While waiting at a nearby jungle airstrip, they were ambushed by gunmen sent by Jim Jones. Ryan was killed, along with the reporter and cameraman from NBC, a photographer from the San Fran Examiner, and a female People's Temple, Temple member who was attempting to leave. That same day as the murders at the airstrip, Jones told his followers that soldiers would come for them and torture them. He then ordered everyone to gather in the main pavilion and commit what he termed a revolutionary act. There's more. <laughs> the youngest members of the People's Temple were the first to die as parents and nurses used syringes to drop a potent mix of cyanide, sedatives, and powered fruit juice into children's throats. And the reasons why they had a stockpile of cyanide was because at one point Jones had reportedly obtained a jeweler's license. So that's... What? Yeah, I I don't know. I guess, yeah. I don't, yeah. Do what you got to do, Joe. Ah, I just thought that was interesting information, so I put that in there. Yeah. So then once the children died, you know, adults (laughs) lined up to drink the poison lace concoction while armed guards surrounded the pavilion. While Guyanese officials arrived at the Jonestown compound the next day, they found it carpeted with hundreds of bodies. Many people had perished with their arms around each other. Jim Jones, age 47, was found in a chair, dead from a single bullet wound, uh, wound to the head, which was most likely self inflicted. Mm-hmm. The death toll at Jonestown on November 18th, 1978, was 909 people. Holy a shit. A third of them were children. A few managed to escape into the jungle that day, while at least several dozen more People's Temple members, including several of Joan's sons, were in another part of Guyana at the time. 909 people. That's so hard to... Shit. That's like a whole high school. Just wow. Yeah. Just and on. I mean, to I'm think wrong. one third, like 300 of those people were children. Oh, that, my God. They were born into this, or they really thought they were doing something well. They thought they were helping yeah. their world. Or but... just
1: flat out didn't even know what was going on. Yeah.
0: You I know what I mean? Even... Yeah. So um, I decided, I mean, they said that there were some people that survived. So I thought, let me do my research and mm-hmm. read some survival accounts. Okay. So the first story I got was of Jordan Vilches. She said that she was put on the planning commission at age 16, where the meetings were a strange mix of church business, sex talk, and adulation for Jones. Now, backtrack to when she was 12. I believe she was 12 was when she joined the church with her parents because her father was African American and her mom was Scottish. So they came from a very mixed group. Yeah. And when they found a church that mm-hmm. kind of established yeah. like what they were about as a family, they thought that was really cool, oh, it was perfect. rare. So it, you know, it was just a concoction for a whole mess. So, finishing um, instead of finishing high school, she moved to San Fran with the church. And um, after the 1977 New West magazine ex- uh, expose of temple disciplinary beatings and other abuses, she was sent to Jonestown. And um, there, she was put to work in the fields. She didn't like it, of course. Yeah. And she didn't like the White Nights, where everyone stayed up, armed with machetes, to fight enemies who never arrived. Oh, she was then dispatched to the Guyanese capital of Georgetown to raise money. And on November 18th, she was at the Temple House when a fanatical Jones aide received a dire radio message from Jonestown, uh, where the murders and suicides were unfolding, 150 miles away. Vilches recalls, she says she gives us the order that we were supposed to kill ourselves. And within minutes, the aide and her three children lay dead on the bloody bathroom, their throats slit. Oh. For years, Vilchez felt ashamed for the part she played in an idealistic group that imploded so terribly. She goes, everyone participated in it, and because of that, it went as far as it did. Vilchez now works as an office manager at a private crime lab for 20 years, and now at 61 sells her artwork. So it seems like she kind of got her life back together after that. I mean, I I couldn't even imagine the guilt she feels, like the survivor's guilt. So then, the next one was a really interesting one: is Stephen Gandhi Jones, who's Jim Jones' biological first son. And uh, he goes, he says, "So much was attractive and unique that we turned a blind eye on what was wrong." He said, including his father's sexual excesses, drug abuse, and rants. As a San Francisco high school student, he was dispatched to help build Jonestown. It would become a little town where all people of ages and colors raised raised food and children. But at one point, um, he decided to rebel, and the people he was with refused Jones' orders to come back to Jonestown. And Stefan believed that he was too cowardly to follow through with the off threatened revolutionary suicide.
1: Hmm.
0: Once everything at Jonestown happened, Stefan Jones and the other team members believed they could have changed history if they were there in that moment. And he says the reality was we were folks who could be counted on to stand up. There was no way we would be shooting at the airstrip that's what triggered it. That's what triggered it all was that shooting at the airstrip. And he thinks that if he were there, he could have changed things. And I feel like, I mean, maybe it could have changed things, Yeah, but you can't keep looking at the past and think, what if, what if, what if. You're just going to go insane.
1: And especially something like that. I mean, if there was only a few of them,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah. you know what
1: I mean? It's like imagine like maybe you could have made a difference but not nearly enough like I feel like what what happened would have happened regardless like the damage was already done yeah they would have been there to say hey maybe let's not or try to get people to you know swap you know switch out and follow them but it once you get a certain amount of power once that shit starts it's inevitable yeah for sure so maybe it could have made a small difference but in the, over, in the grand overall, scheme of things, I don't. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when there's, what was it, over nine nine hundred 909. 909. Said, you know, maybe, most of those people are so uh, brainwashed. Exactly. And then you consider the people that they had with them with no choice. Like, if those yeah. people had kids, you know what I mean? Like, there's only a, so much of a difference you can make. Not that it wouldn't have mattered, you know, not that it isn't significant because every life does count, probably. Of but when you look at the numbers,
0: I mean it wouldn't have been a hundred. Yeah. You know I what just I mean? think the point is just like you can't you can't look back. You can only take what's happened in your past and lead a better future for yourself. And for his family, which now he has three daughters, okay. aged sixteen, twenty-five, and twenty-nine, and works in office furniture installation. He says that people often ask him, How can you ever be proud of your father? And he just says, I just have to love him and forgive him. Aww. So There's that. And then the last story I have is of Eugene Smith. Mm -hmm. He was 18 and running the Temple Construction Crew when the church sanctioned him to marry a very talented 16-year-old singer, Ollie Ollie Mm Weidman. After Ollie became pregnant, she was sent to Jonestown, and Eugene remained behind. Eventually, Smith was reunited with uh, his mother and his wife in Jonestown, and Ollie was eight and a half months pregnant. After an hour of being in Jonestown, Jones's promise of no corporal punishment was broken. He beat people and forced people like Eugene to work 24 hours straight. Life became more tolerable after the couple's baby, Martin Luther Smith, was born. Mm-hmm. Eugene Smith was like, all right, like right, I'm here for a reason. I'm so excited that he's in, on this earth and yeah. maybe we can get through this. He was then ordered to Georgetown to help with sh- supply shipments. And Smith said that at that point, he concocted an, an escape plan for him and his wife and his mom. Ollie and the other Temple singers and dancers, he believed, would soon be sent to Georgetown to perform, and at that point, the family could flee to the U.S. Embassy. Okay. But the entertainers stayed in Jonestown to entertain Ryan, as I said previously, mm-hmm. and Smith's wife, son, and mother died. More than oh, 20 ter- uh, 22 years um more than, after more than 22 years at California's Transportation Department, Smith has now retired in 2015. Um, he's like 61 years old, 62 years old. He's never remarried, and Martin Luther Smith was his only child. So clearly, this oh, really yeah. messed him up. I mean, he had this idea of once his son was born, he had this opportunity to go to another town. He thought that his wife could bring his son with them and his mom. And from there, once they're out of that Jonestown area, they can go to the USMC and leave. But it was too late. So, yeah. But um, that's my story for Jonestown. So, Lily, what is your next story? My next story,
1: I'm thinking I'm going to do Heaven's Gate. Okay. One okay. of my absolute favorites. <laughs> absolute favorite cult. I, I don't know why. I am just so, like, I mean, that's what they do. They, like, draw you in. Of course. And, like, my dumb ass is falling for it. <laughs> but I am so, I was talking about it at work once, and my boss was like, Lily, you are too young to watch that. And my coworker's like, Paul, she's 22. <laughs> like, she's not 11 anymore. Um, yeah, so let me just pull up some notes. Oh. You know what time it is. I think I do. Time for some notebook ASMR.
0: And just break my table while you're at it. (sighs) All right. Like fresh water.
1: (laughs) It's like a waterfall. All right. So Heaven's Gate was uh, founded by a man named Marshall Applewhite and a woman named Bonnie Nettles. So, Marshall Applewhite was the son of a Presbyterian minister. And in the 70s, they began the, you know, church and, like, you know, uh, their following and everything. And Applewhite later recalled that he had known Nettles for a long time and that what had happened was they met in a past life.
0: Oh. Yeah,
1: yeah. and she said that their meeting had been foretold to her by extraterrestrials. Yeah, so... They pondered the life of Saint Francis Assisi or Assisi. I'm not sure. Oh, Assisi, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and read works by authors including Helena Bl- Blata- Blavatsky. <laughs> <laughs> I read this ahead of time too. <laughs> R.D. Lang and Richard Bach. Um, they kept a King James Bible with them, and they would study passages from it um, from the New Testament um but they would focus on the teachings about christology, asceticism and eschatology um which i got like some definitions on but you know doesn't really matter either way they um but they would read science fiction and kind of that became the sci-fi even became part of their beliefs of real life
0: huh okay
1: yeah and so they w- concluded that They were chosen to fulfill biblical prophecies and that they had been been given higher-level minds than Mm -hmm. other people. And something really interesting is they would refer to their bodies as vehicles. Okay. So they would be like, our bodies are the current vehicle to reach
0: our final form or whatever, like they're fucking Pokemon evolving (laughs) or some shit. I have said my body's a vehicle, (laughs) too. (laughs) I say that in, like, my inspirational, like, fitness self. Like, your body's a vehicle. You need to, like... Do oil changes and like you know fuel yourself. <laughs> yeah, with, exactly. You got to take care. I should of have yourself. been a
1: part of this cult. <laughs> oh my god. So they, so um, they resolved to contact extraterrestrials, and they sought like-minded followers, and that's kind of how this began. So they would publish advertisement. Sorry, they would publish <laughs> advertisements for meetings, and they. Uh, recruited people disciples and followers but they referred to them as the crew um and they purported to represent beings from another planet which they just referred to as the next level right um and they sought participants for an experiment um and in 1975 the crew assembled in a hotel in waldport oregon oregon and they would then they sold all like worldly possessions and said, you know, farewell to loved ones and they vanished from the hotel and from the public eye. And essentially what they did was they went into hiding pretty much. Um, They formed like their own community and everything. And they, so Marshall Applewhite went from the name, when is the name Doe? D-O. And Bonnie Nettles, uh, her like cult name was T and Doe. Other than that, um, they referred to themselves as you know, like, what is it? Where is it? Fuck. Bow and Peep.
0: What the yeah, hell? Yeah, so they call themselves
1: Bow and Peep. Um, like little Bow. Little little Bow and Peep. Bow Peep. Holy That's the I I yeah. why those names. So um <laughs> yeah, so what they wanted to do was help members of the crew achieve a higher evolutionary level above human. Um, so they used a variety variety of aliases, of course, and they had a variety of names. So uh, prior to the adoption of the name Heaven's Gate, it was known as human individual Metamorphoses, and a bunch of other stuff. So flash forward to 1997, March 26, 1997. So this group had been secretly communicating with each other, and they would pass notes like, They would leave a note in a product at a store, and it would be like, oh, go here, be here this time. This is where we are and everything. So um, one night, they went to a Marie Callender's restaurant. Okay. And they had all been living in a mansion together. I hope they got shepherd's pie. They have really good shepherd's pie Dude, shepherd's pie, the chicken pot pie, too. Uh, I love, I regularly eat them. uh, Yes. uh, Sponsor (laughs) us, Marie Callender's. (laughs) If you can take care of Heaven's Gate, you can take care of us too. We're we're pretty great.
0: We're not picky eaters. Yeah,
1: right. So before the suicide, um, the website the website is actually still up to this day. Really? Yeah, I looked it up, and was it creepy? it was weird and it still has like the same like 90s-esque logo and everything because oh, like God. it was made in yeah. like 1990s so before they updated the website so it says Hail Bob brings closure to Heaven's Gate our 22 years of classroom here on the planet is finally coming to conclusion graduation from the human evolutionary level we are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew
0: I'm just like looking up so the
1: website this. now look
0: so 90 right So they definitely thought they were cool with that, like little pop. Yeah,
1: exactly. No, so uh, what they also had was they believed that the Hale Bob comet was coming; it was going to destroy Earth. The only way out was to leave their vehicles Uh and graduate with T and Doe. And you can watch videos online of um, Doe, right, the male leader, um, kind of explaining what's going to happen, and he like does not blink. I watched some of them. I had to stop that creepy. Yeah. I was like getting ready before work and I like threw it on to just kind of like see what happened. I'm just like doing my makeup and shit and looking for my highlighter. And I just like <laughs> look up and he's just staring me dead in the eyes. Like it was fucking insane. Yeah. And he looks and he doesn't blink and he talks very, you know, matter of fact and like, in a weird, an odd tone kind of explaining, you know, the purpose and everything And you can also watch like testimonials from members of the crew. Yeah. Um, And they gave them, they took completely different names. So they joined and again, like we were saying earlier, there was, there tends to be a pattern of taking people who are lost or don't know what to do with themselves or have recently lost someone Uh and they kind of draw them in. Yeah. so that they think oh this is what i'm going to do right they're Take almost like a, yeah they're almost like a blank slate looking for something and they're like oh here this is you know this is our purpose it could be yours too yeah. this should be yours so they they like shaved their head they all have short hair they all wore like rather plain clothes and they just kind of lived in a community and the names, two of the names that I found, the, it was just, like, random. Like, you took, like, a spoon of alphabet soup and then put the letters together and <laughs> made a name. We have Custody, Q-S-T-O-D-Y, and S R R O D Y. Custody,
0: Custodi, but I don't know why that came up in my head, but Custody. alphabet soup brought me back to my childhood, and I thought... Stopped- why not have a little fun with the cult names? Yeah,
1: why not? So, they're te- so they had a list of um, techniques to enter the next level. So it says here, um, according to Heaven's Gate, once the individual had perfected himself through the process, which is like, you know, just preparing and they all cut their heads. They all looked very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, there were four methods to enter or graduate to the next level. Physical pickup into the tela. T-E-L-A-H Spacecraft And transfer to a next level body Aboard the craft So um, in this version um, It's called like just like a UFO version Of the Rapture Which is an alien spacecraft Which would descend to Earth Kind of like what we spoke of In our last episode Uh Check out our last episode on UFOs
0: UFO hell no
1: UFO hell no UFO no she better don't (laughs) Which is (laughs) Oh no she better don't Is another drag queen Um Mention drag queens and cults. That'll be this episode.
0: (laughs) This episode in honor of RuPaul's Drag Race.
1: Um, So, you know, they would collect apple white nettles and their followers, and then their human bodies would be transformed through a biological and chemical process, and they would become these perfected beings ready for the next level of, you know, life or whatever. Mm -hmm. They also said that natural death, accidental death, or death from random violence... And it says here the graduating soul leaves the human container um, to a perfected next level body. So you pass away, but your soul transfers and lives on. Okay, which
0: is that seems more logical and also kind of peaceful. Yeah. So
1: some people who were who might have lost someone tragically thought, okay, well, you know, should I die tragically as well, or someone I know, we can. Be these followers, yeah. and we can go peacefully and move on to the next level, and you know maybe have another like a second round, a second shot at life, or a third, depending on how many lives they thought they had before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was one, and then there also was outside persecution that leads to death. So um, there were events following um, there were events following uh, Randy Reaver. And Ruby Ridge, um, who we can just post some information on, um, Applewhite was afraid that the American government would murder the members of Heaven's Gate.
0: Okay. Because
1: they were not um, super welcome in the U.S., shockingly. Um, And, of course, like the most famous one and the one that was, you know, really acted upon was the willful exit from the body in a dignified manner. So near the end... Applewhite had a revelation that um, they may have to abandon their human bodies and achieve the next level just as Jesus had done. So okay. they believed they were following Jesus' path. And March 22nd and 23rd, 39 of the members committed suicide and what they thought graduated.
0: Yeah.
1: So when you watch the news coverage and look into it, they... Rented a ninety-two hundred square foot mansion located near one um, eight three four one Colina Norte, which was later changed, um, and it was in a gated community of upscale homes, and it was really nice. So, what they did was <laughs> they were fa- they all wore matching sweatsuits okay, and put the same blankets over them. Um, It says the adherents between the ages of 26 and 72 are believed to have died in three groups over three successive days with remaining participants cleaning up after each group's death. What? So they would clean up the other people's bodies
0: knowing that that would be them next. Mm -hmm. So who cleaned up the third group of people's bodies? I guess guess they they thought... Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I don't know. Like, that's a problem for the next round (laughs) of Heaven's Gate, right? So, but yeah, so they all go out. They all had, I believe, iced tea, um, but all 39 were dressed in identical black shirts and sweatpants, brand new black and white Nike Decades athletic shoes, and armband patches that said, Heaven's Gate Away Team.
0: Oh, God. hmm
1: Yeah. Um, and they were, you know, all, all covered up in, you know, matching blankets. They were in, they put them in bunk beds. So the, it, it wasn't a super scary, you know, like they, you know, it wasn't a violent, you know, suicide. It was a mass suicide. And what it was was it was phenobarbital, which is just a type of medication, mixed with applesauce, and they washed it all down with vodka. Oh, shoot. Yeah, and then um, some of them, I don't believe it's official that all of them, but some of them did put plastic bags around their heads um, after ingesting it to really induce the asphyxiation and kind of expedite the process. Yeah. So authorities found the dead lying neatly in their bunk beds, faces and torsos covered by a square purple cloth. And they, each member was carrying a $5 bill and three quarters in their pockets. And the $5 bill was said to cover vagrancy fines while members were out on jobs. And the quarters were to make phone calls, like at a payphone or something. Oh? Yeah. So they were all found. Um, here I go with um again. I like... <laughs> Rebecca can do this thing where she pauses and knows exactly where she is. And I go to scroll and I'm like, and I just like lose my place. My, my biggest
0: thing is saying like, oh yeah, so, I love the word like. I, I do um a lot. Um, we'll make a drinking d- game out of the next yes.
1: episode.
0: <laughs> Let's get our listeners litty titty. Litty titty. <laughs> um,
1: so among the dead, so a lot of people who had been lost, you know, or gone missing or on the down low were found in that way Um, and among the dead was Thomas Nichols who was the brother of the actress Nichelle Nichols who played the role of Uhura Uhura, I don't know I don't know the show but on the original Star Trek series so people knew about this you know it wasn't just a neighborhood of people who got together like it word got out about them and they all believed this comet was coming, and it was now or never, and they mm-hmm. got to leave their vehicles to transfer, you know, onto whatever path will take them to the their next level of being. Wow. Yeah. And if you watch the videos of both the, you know, the testimonials of people and- um, So all those though, people in those testimonial videos
0: are dead? Yeah. That's crazy.
1: There, are, I, think, I believe there were a couple of people who got out right before. Yeah. They were like, oh, okay, uh, let's not. Yeah, um, for sure. But they really were very intense on keeping themselves uh, low-key and secret. Um, and I was watching something where they would pass notes, like leave mail in, like, a shrub on the street, and they'd be like, okay, like, you know, send, like, Custody or sorodi or lobotomy or something, you know, to this spot and but yeah, so they all went out had a dinner, a nice last dinner, their last supper, the last supper. <laughs> oh my god, that's crazy. Uh, oh. And yeah, so that's um that's pretty much it for Heaven's Gate. They had to bring like re- there were so many bodies they had to bring like refrigerated trucks to pick them up.
0: Wow, mm-hmm. I wonder like if they had normal funerals and. They were buried in the cemeteries and stuff. Yeah, or, I'm sure. It, I'm sure it depends. Yeah, it depends on like the religion yeah. or the families or whatever. That's crazy. Yeah. What'd be interesting is if they wrote wills. Yeah, like if they made Did wills they, to see what. Yeah. Because I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like these people were 12, 13. They said ranged from 26 to 72. So they were, you know, they were. Yeah, older. They, they were. They were settled in. Yeah. They, yeah. They were adults. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So my story is on the children of God. It was founded by David Berg and started in 1968 and is still currently going on. This cult still happening here. All right. And the roots of the family can be traced back to the counterculture movement of the late 1960s. Many young adults called flower children or hippies left the middle class life of their families of origin and saw a simpler lifestyle in the form of communal life in Southern California. Out of this hippie movement came a loosely connected group of evangelical Christian organizations collectively known as the Jesus People, which were described nice. as a diverse <laughs> collection of pastors, street pe- preachers, oddballs, and intellectuals, all trying to communicate the gospel <laughs> to the counterculture. I wonder if they all attended Coachella. Yeah, The original Coachella. <laughs> wow. So, Berg began, um, Berg is the uh, founder, he mm-hmm. began his professional life as a... Evangelist for the Christian and Missionary Alliance in 1964. He became the leader of a Teen Challenge chapter in Huntington Beach, California in 1967. Teen Challenge was a youth ministry of the Assemblies of God denomination. He then separated the members, uh, he separated the group from the National Teen Challenge organization in 1968 and renamed it the Light Club. Members of the Light Club were called Light Clubbers. (laughs) Many flower children were encouraged by rock music and Free peanut butter sandwiches to spend some time <laughs> in the coffee house. That would pull me in. Yeah, is this rock music the, is, and peanut butter is, sandwiches?
1: Are these the people who introduced the frame the phrase Flower Child, or was it already a thing? And it's I, kind I of think
0: they sign. the they, they were just Flower Children. Okay, things. they're like Flower Children hippies. Like, it was already a thing. Yeah, and it wasn't like oh, Children of God. Let's call them Flower Child. Like it was yeah. A thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and some evangelized other hippies, a few on a full-time basis. Holy Burke received a revelation from God in 1969 that a disastrous earthquake was about to hit California, and cause part of the state and cause part part of the state to slide into the ocean. They always say that's going to happen. Yeah, apparently
1: that's- my brother told me like California moves like after every earthquake, like three inches away from Earth every Does it? year. <laughs>
0: Okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's pre- it pretty much should be its own like country at this point, I yeah, guess. who knows. So he led the group out of Huntington Beach to wander through the American Southwest for eight months. And during that time, they changed their name to the Children of God. The earthquake never materialized as Berg prophesied. Hmm. Also in 1969, Berg became a polygamist by marrying a second wife named Maria. He based this decision on passages from the Old Testament which permitted multiple wives— he received revelations from God identifying himself as the end-time prophet who would play a major role in the second coming, which is the long-anticipated return of the earth, uh, to earth of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. New members were encouraged to sever all contact with their families of origin, to donate almost their entire possessions to the group, and to become full-time evangelists. Their parents were justifiably concerned about the status, future, and safety of their adult children. But you know they're adults they can do what they want Mm -hmm. you know and they're so mind washed from this guy that it doesn't need none of that matters to them all that matters is being a part of this community yeah and again
1: going into it it's not it's not super you know we're gonna you know it's it doesn't seem super violent yeah you know which gets gets a lot
0: yeah, and I think also in the beginning of this religion, there wasn't social media where people mm-hmm. could you know talk about this stuff and really get other people's accounts. Be like, this doesn't add up. This isn't yeah. right, and try to spread awareness.
1: Ooh, I can't see,
0: wait uh, to see what happens now with mm-hmm. social media. Yeah, riveting. Okay, sorry, <laughs> So David Berg, now called himself Moses David, first attempted to disperse the membership among many communes called um, colonies throughout the United States. He later prophesied that a comet would hit the United States and destroy all life. This motivated the group to organize the Great Escape, an exodus whereby almost all of the members left the U.S. and settled in various countries in Europe, South America, India, and Australia. So now this allowed... His community to be all over the world, so now everyone, mm. everyone has some sort of influence from mm. the children of God. It was pretty smart on his part. Yeah. Um, in 1976, Berg encouraged the women members of the group to engage in flirty fishing. <gasps> this term was based on Jesus' injunction, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men," which was in Matthew 4:19. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, women members were urged to go into bars and befriend men, and they were expected to seduce potential male converts if necessary to in order um, to encourage them towards a religious conversion and memberships in the organization. Wait, that's so funny. Really quick, because my cousin refers to, like, flirting with a guy as reeling them in.
1: There are so be Like, so I reel, and she does even, like, the little motion, <laughs> if you're listening to this, Francesca, shout out. She'll be like, "Chacha reels in. <laughs> and she does a little reeling
0: in motion. Oh, man, she did go to Catholic school. Maybe, that, maybe that's where that comes <laughs> from. I'm texting her later. The Children of God was reorganized as the family of love in 1977 mm-hmm. after some abuses of authority were revealed among the leadership. Their mm-hmm. organizational name was later shortened to the family. I love how their, their, uh, their resolution every time these... Cults get into a scandal. Let's just change the name and no one will catch on. Yeah. Like, can't find us now. We're still the horrible cult we were when we were the other name, but maybe <laughs> people just will forget if it's we just, just change the name. It's a makeover, it's a facelift <laughs> for
1: the cult. <laughs>
0: like, glow up. I swear, like we, your ex, I swear I've changed. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, right? <laughs>
1: All right. So then
0: Berg introduced sexual sharing, which is a free... This is really fucked up. Which is free consensual sexual activity among the membership. But this is the super fucked up part. The free expression of sexuality, including fornication, adultery, lesbianism, though not male homosexuality, and incest were not just permitted, but encouraged. And also, this is the most fucked up part... According to according to previous members, this group opposed anti-pedophilia laws, saying having sex with children was not only permitted, but also a divine right. Holy shit. And they said that, like, I mean, this could start from the age of two or three. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, super fucked up. Super fucked Holy, up. Holy, wow. Yeah, so for this one, too, I also looked at survivor accounts, and one that stood out to me was of Verity Carter. She's now... 38 years old, and she says that she was abused from the age of four by members of the Children of God cult, including her own father. So as well as sexual abuse, she says that she was repeatedly beaten and whipped for the smallest of transgressions. And she says it became hell on earth for anyone born into it. She also said it happened a step at at a time and many of the adults did not see how extreme it was until it had gotten too late. She had no contact with the outside world. She did not have music or television or any other other culture She had no idea How the world Outside of their cult Worked Where was she Living um, Does it say She was actually um, In the UK She was in the UK Yeah In the UK Because um, this source Was actually This uh, interview with her Was written by the BBC Gotcha And she says that they received no formal education and they were just taught survival skills and how to keep secrets from the systemites in the outside world, especially uh, social workers that would come in Mm -hmm. and check on them. Mm -hmm. She then escaped at the age of 15, but said she suffered severe depression, suicidal thoughts, as well as nightmares and insomnia, which is understandable. And she said she had spent years on significant levels of drugs and alcohol to try to erase her past. She updated by saying her father left before her... um, and she says that he never acknowledges what abuse he did to her, which makes her super upset. Of course. And her mother remains in the cult, and she has not spoken to her, but she's, she talks to her siblings who are outside of the cult now. So okay. at least she has her siblings to kind of lean on, and she's not alone. Yes. As you know, As she knows, there were so many other kids affected and are still being affected by this cult that... They, they don't know life outside of this cult. They don't know that there's so much more that the world has to offer them because they're born into it. This yeah. is all they know. And they're not exposed to social media. They're not exposed to outside I mean, they don't culture. even have music. Yeah. I can't even imagine life without music. Yeah. Like TV but, is one thing, but like...
1: I mean, life without TV obviously would be very yeah. different, especially if you've never like even like seen one. Mm-hmm. But I feel like music also is something that not like that it's universal but everyone can everyone hears the same tune mm-hmm. you know the words might be different but everyone hears the same tune yeah so even if it was just like their community had just like their own personal hymns that they listened to or something but just no music flat out i i can't imagine
0: yeah it's yeah it's super messed up and the fact that this is like i said this this cult's still going on all around the world mm-hmm. um But yeah, I I didn't do research on like what these people, like what these people are doing now, like how they kind of reach, like how how they reach people. Mm -hmm. But they do have documentaries on the children of God. There are um, a lot of celebrities that were actually born into this religion and then got out because they realized how fucked up it was. Wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's my spiel on the children of God. Wow. Yeah, so Lily, what is your next story on? All right, so my next story actually was
1: suggested to us by actually our friend, hey, a friend of ours, who who goes to Sarah Lawrence College. We'll keep her anonymous just in case. Um, Let me get to my notes. Another classic case of Lily saying, um. (laughs) All right.
0: This episode brought to you by... Um. um.
1: So this is the Sarah Lawrence College sex cult, which uh, started in around September 2010. So this is another really recent one. So our friend who goes there actually texted us or texted me in like our little group chat. She was like, guys, I just found out that my school had a sex cult in 2010. And I was like, holy shit. And then we decided we were doing cults. And she was like, boy, do I have a, a story, story for, for you. <laughs> Buckle in. <laughs> Strap in. So um, there were members who lived in a house on SLC campus. And there were, I think I believe, not, uh, eight students who were residents. And there was a girl named Talia Ray who was a student there. And she, at one point, brought her father in. So it says that she brought him in because he had just escaped from being incarcerated. Yeah. Um, So he moved in during her sophomore year um, within days of his release. Um, And he had been in prison for his heroic efforts to save the kids from their abusive mother. And he had been incarcerated for government corruption. And so a little bit of background on him was he... Oops. Oops. Some little extra ASMR for you. <laughs> I just this shit out. <laughs> okay. So, a little bit of background on him is he had worked on Wall Street in the early 80s, and he had no degree, which is interesting. Yeah. He kind of, you know, worked his way up from there. And he would tell them stories of his like military service. But when you look into it, he was only in the military for 19 days in the Air Force in 1981. So uh, in 2000, he was indicted with 18 others for security fraud. And he allegedly, you know, repeatedly lied to the FBI. Um, So this guy isn't a super, you know, bang up guy where you're like, oh yes, come join us, please. So he apparently was just like this average looking guy. He was of average weight, but he was a little overweight and still intimidating. So he would, uh, he had his head shaven and he would wear these polo shirts to really look, you know, look Buff. like, yeah, like, uh, like a bro. A, he, bro you even do you even cult Do you even cult, <laughs> but apparently he would say things to the residents like, Oh, do you work out? Are you good to defend yourself? Cause you look really weak and. He would kind of intimidate them, so he kind of had like this alpha male thing going on. And these
0: poor liberal arts students, like, right?
1: I just wanna write. <laughs> they just want to write their free first poems, which I, I can relate to. They even said at one point, they were like, We weren't a normal house to begin with because we wanted to buy a bunch of sand and like put it in the kitchen to make a <laughs> beach. So I'm not, yeah, the guy's like, So I'm not saying that we're totally normal, but even this was weird for us.
0: <laughs> I love it. Right?
1: So uh, he became kind of the father of the house. He would cook for them. He would co- like nice steak dinners. He would order expensive delivery food. He cleaned and he would tell his stories. And while they ate, he would tell stories in his nasal Brooklyn accent about his long and, you know, decorated history as a government agent and his former work and CIA operative and all, all this stuff and kind of talked himself up, yeah. right?
0: I love how they noted nasal Brooklyn accent. Right?
1: And then you can, like, really picture him. So... Seems like a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Had a nasal Brooklyn accent. Pretty much. Pretty much. So he also would tell that he had these techniques to discipline the mind and training that he had received from the government. And eventually he began counseling some of uh, his daughter's roommates, including Isabella, who was his daughter's best friend. So, she had gone through a breakup and seemed to take comfort in his company and she says you know like I'm 19 I was having a lot of difficulty making sense of things I wasn't in a good place and then she goes on to say he started to help me kind of process and make sense of a lot of things that I just couldn't make sense of and uh, another resident said that Isabella was pretty fragile and in fact a lot of people in that building were very fragile so Clearly, he knew what he was
0: doing. Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah. He, um, so this girl, Isabella, was one of the main people to really fall under his spell. Mm-hmm. Um, again, uh, some background that they found on him is that people who knew, going back a little, Larry in the 90s, said it was common for Larry to offer sex with his girlfriend. And he had a long, uh, t- long-term girlfriend while he was married. Um, And he would offer sex with them to his friends and business associates. Oh, God. Yeah. And not doing what Larry wanted had consequences. So according to one person, when his girlfriend tried to leave their relationship, Larry sent graphic pictures of her (laughs) to her parents... And when a different girlfriend broke up with him, Larry purchased a GPS tracking device and, according to a police report, tried to get someone to attach it to her car. This guy's fucking nuts. Yeah, at least two associates of Larry's described witnessing situations in which they felt some of the women Larry lived with were being offered up for sexual purposes. So Ew. clearly this guy had a kind of a sexual agenda going on. And so he goes in with these young kids who are all kind of confused. You know, they're, they're young college students. They're so learning. So I know, I
0: think this guy has a small dick. I'm getting small dick energy from him. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it.
1: <laughs> so while, ta- while, Elizabeth, while Isabella was <laughs> going through the stuff and kind of seeing Larry for counseling, another uh, resident... Talia, her boyfriend at the time, says he remembers seeing Larry and Isabella reclining on Talia's bed. And Larry was stroking her hair, saying, you know, things like, nobody's going to hurt my baby girl. And then apparently Larry was going to start sleeping in Isabella's room. And that was an arrangement that made Talia's boyfriend uncomfortable And he said to the boyfriend, you know, you're acting like I'm going to be sleeping with her, but I'm going to be sleeping on the floor. She needs someone to help her. Oh, God. And at one point, Larry called Isabella's family. And according to her (laughs) aunt, Larry told her that Isabella had been sexually abused as a child by a family friend and that if Isabella were to go home for break, she might commit suicide. So now Isabella's stuck with him, right? And she doesn't see anything and uh the friend's boyfriend goes on to say that he controlled every aspect of our lives. They moved into an apartment on the upper east side where he removed like locks and doorknobs from the doors so there was no privacy.
0: None at all. So I wonder if when he said that Isabella had been sexually abused as a child by a family friend if he if that if that's something she actually said to him or he was just saying that um my guess is that it was something. Do you think it actually happened?
1: Uh, my guess is probably not. Uh, that's so messed up.
0: Yeah, and the fact he has the balls to call her family when he's the one in the wrong yeah. doing all this stuff, and he just has that—he has that confidence in himself that he can the manipulate and the,
1: the entanglement and the yeah, like oh, I'm just gonna pull this off. So they move in to this apartment on the Upper East Side, and. Talia's boyfriend says when we ate, when we ate, what we did, and when we went to bed, he was in control of all that. Wow. So Larry told Talia's boyfriend that he should stop taking his prescribed antipsychotic medication, which can be insane for someone, especially, you know, weaning yourself off of one med, one type of med and onto the other is one thing and you know saying okay like this isn't working for me I'm going to cut down my doses but something like an antipsychotic just stopping is not healthy not only for the person taking them but the people around them can't even imagine like the withdrawals and like I, exactly. the side effects Th- the withdrawals and then the going back to the behavior Mm-hmm. Can be really, really bad. There's a reason why you're put on that. There's a reason you're put on it, and there's a reason that you ease people on and off of it, right? Yeah. And I'm wondering if maybe since he was taking him off of the uh, off of his anti-sykes, he thought as he was coming down and acting weird, he could be like, oh well this is what it was like before, don't you remember? Ooh. Right? So it was another form of control. Um and he and the boyfriend also said that, you know. Larry's behavior kind of acted weird. They were there for winter break. um, And he was so disturbed by Larry's behavior that he broke up with Talia right after. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there was another girl, Claudia, who was very intrigued by one of his, one of Larry's talks with them that she began having weekly counseling sessions with Larry. And she was particularly motivated to adopt his eating and exercise regimen. And according to her mother, she became very fixated on losing weight and became increasingly unhappy with how she looked. Mm. And another uh, one of the roommates, his name is Daniel, also got, you know, he got the whole fucking fucked over situation. So... And this is all happening on campus. Yeah, this is all happening either in on campus or in Larry's apartment on the Upper East Side wow. where some of them moved. So Daniel said that he remembers delivering handwritten letters to Larry listing the items he had damaged as part of an intentional effort to harm Larry's family. And some shit happened to Daniel, too. So one night, Isabella comes out of the bedroom and just began kissing Daniel on the couch and at first, he thought Isabella, who's kind of like the first really one that uh, Larry had drawn in, thought that she was just acting on a crush and she was really into him. But then a few weeks later, Larry ushered the two of them into the bedroom instructing Daniel and Isabella to have sex while he watched. Uh-huh. And the sessions then became regular and then Larry would sometimes join in. Oh. And he would participate. And he made it seem... As if his presence were like part of their journey to clarity, and at one point he actually invited Chen, his who was uh, Larry's friend and landlord, invited him in. Oh my god! To join them. Yeah. So after a while, uh, Daniel and Claudia went to study abroad, and even that distance didn't stop. So Larry um, actually, you know, would have them meet up on Skype in for a quote family meeting, and then he would coach them through having sex. What? Yes. Yeah. And uh, Talia, his daughter, missed the application deadline for Stanford Law School, and Larry blamed it on Daniel and said that he was intentionally sabotaging you know, her by distracting her. And in a confession session that night, Daniel denied having anything to do with the missed deadline. However, Larry didn't believe Daniel's denial. So he crushed pieces of aluminum foil into little balls and rolled, this is very graphic, guys, little balls and rolled them up inside a string of saran wrap fashioning what Daniel described as a necklace of metal lumps. And Larry, he, you know, he called it a garrot. And in front of the group, Larry ordered Daniel to, this very graphic, guys, wrap the contraption around his testicles and penis. And then Larry began twisting it, the metal cut off the circulation mm. and then dug into the flesh. So this guy, is, this is, fucked this guy is fucked up and he'll look for anyone, you know? And, and so another uh, occurrence was a 20-year-old uh, who goes by Santos. Larry would regularly abuse Santos by putting Santos in a sleeper hold until he passed out. And when he woke up, Larry would say, oh, did the darkness envelop you? And it was a whole thing. So there was a lot of violence. So he would, you know, hold them in, you know, sleeper holds and garrots around their genitals. And in fact, at one point, Daniel supposedly damaged the oven, right? So these little trivial things. And Larry asked him to kneel and then stood over him with a knife and threatened to dismember him.
0: Ugh. I'm just looking up, like, what Larry Ray looks like.
1: Total typical, you know, creep.
0: (laughs) Total creep. Yeah.
1: And so even just, like, the littlest thing, like, uh, scratching a plate or anything, they'd be disciplined. So Larry, of course, was sent to, you know, jail and all of this stuff, but... <clears throat> Daniel one of his final visits to the to his apartment um, he told Larry that he was feeling kind of unsure about his sexuality and Larry says enough of this and tells Isabella to go get one of her dresses and then in front of the assembled kids Larry tells Daniel put on the dress and re- <laughs> and retrieve the building the mail from the building's lobby and then when he return Larry handed Daniel a dildo and ordered him to penetrate himself. Daniel followed Larry's command and his friends laughed at him and that was like one of the last times he was like, yeah, that's enough. I'm never looking back. So after he put a dildo in his ass, he's like, I'm done. Yeah, that was the that that was where he drew the line. Yeah. Um wow. Yeah, so of course, a lot of shit went down and one of them, actually, a couple of them, actually, at some point, had attempted suicide. Wow. Um, um, in the midst of all of this. And that's, you know, that's pretty much all of the real details. And, you know, there's some more, but it's just so fucked up that yeah. going too much into detail is unreal. And the reason wow. that this is coming out now is that, at one point, it was on the cover of New York Magazine. So it was—I forget what what the headline said—but it was insane, yeah, fucking insane. And a lot went down. And
0: well, while you were while you were reading this, I was just really curious because I mean, this was all because he was staying at a dorm in Sarah Lawrence. Mm -hmm. um, Which, when I read the article too, you know, they were saying, "Oh, we had no idea he was living on campus." They kept him. He was off the
1: record, and it was one of those things when people are so positive that. Of what they're doing is okay. No one questions it. Yeah. Like, uh, I forget what it was, but if you ever want to just get into a building, literally, uh, I was talking to someone about this dress as a funny that since he had gotten the mail in the dress, but put on, you know, like a UPS or a USPS uniform and then say you have a delivery and they'll let you go anywhere. That's crazy. Or like a, Bag of like delivery food and act confused, and they'll let you go anywhere in the building. Wow! Yeah, so he was probably like, "Oh,
0: visiting my daughter," and that was it. Yeah, because they're allowed to. You're allowed to visit your kids at the school. And I just happened. I I was just curious about the girl and Mm -hmm. like where she's at now, and like I just happened to find her LinkedIn and stuff like that. And now she's in North Carolina. She's a paralegal. Good for her. Yeah. So I mean, like, I feel bad for her because. What she probably has to go through now, yeah, with the association of her father—that's terrible. She's at this, yeah. She's doing. A, she's a Southern Coalition for Social Justice. So hopefully, she's taking maybe the things that she went through in her life, and she's doing something to help others. Yeah, D- that could definitely be part of her, um, part of her motivation. Yeah, you know,
1: what I'm, what I'd be interested in knowing is if he had a history of maybe. Um, not only like, you know, sexually abusing like the wife and the girlfriend, but if anything ever happened to her. But, um, and from what I read, I didn't really see much of that, but I, you know, I could be yeah. wrong.
0: You know, you never know. Maybe they're keeping it under wraps. Yeah.
1: I mean, there is just so much on this. Yeah. That, you know, without making it its own episode, kind of like an Area 51 thing where you yeah. just have to kind of touch upon this and.
0: Which all is that interesting because I'd never heard of this until, you know, our friend brought it up to us. Exactly. It's, I feel like it's. I thought I would have heard of this by now.
1: Yeah. And it's also interesting because um, Rebecca and I, Rebecca was trying to make me work out at the gym, and it was a clusterfuck. It was a complete (laughs) catastrophe. It was, like, almost sad. She's like, oh, just lift these five-pound weights. And it was, like, (laughs) terrible. Lily did a good job. A for effort, I think.
0: For sure. Yeah. you
1: got to start somewhere. Yeah. I I got a treadmill and a bike and some weights at home, so I'll be where, Anyways, (laughs) um... But while we were there, we were talking about how you know you knew you wanted to talk about Jonestown. I knew I wanted to talk about Heaven's Gate, and then we were thinking, you know, obviously we had this suggestion, which mm-hmm. was awesome because we didn't want to just do things everyone else has heard about. Yeah, you know, because clearly people are listening to this podcast about cults; they've heard about these two things, yeah, most likely. So throwing in some, you know, what you have, which is still going on, and this recent, which this recent cult, which we hadn't heard about, mm-hmm. is kind of cool to have like some
0: more low key low key stuff that is still fucking nuts yeah so with that being said thank you guys so much for you know sending us your suggestions and when you have stories it doesn't have to be ghost stories it can be conspiracy theories or stories about demons or ghosts or guardian haunted, angels guardian angels reincarnation mm-hmm. anything because we can use this information to have fe- to create future episodes yeah. and we want original content, things that, you know, we can't just look up online. You know, it's great to cover popular stories, mm-hmm. but so many people have done that. So when you send us unique stories like that, like it really helps our podcast out and we really do appreciate it. So mm-hmm. thank you guys again. Um, I'm going to take it away with the last, uh, with the last story for this episode of Cults, And we're going to be talking about the Manson family. Now, originally I was going to kind of lightly touch upon it but once I was doing my research and I was like I kind of (laughs) want to cover most of what happened from start to finish so the Manson family was a desert commune and cult formed in California in the late 1960s it was led by Charles Manson and Manson appeared to have borrowed philosophically from the process church of the final judgment whose members believed Satan would become reconciled to Christ and they would come together at the end of the world to judge humanity all right, so this group had consisted of approximately 100 um, followers who lived in unconventional lifestyle with habitual use of hallucinogenic drugs. Most of the group members were young women from middle-class backgrounds, many of whom were radically, uh, radicalized by Manson's teachings and drawn by hippie culture and communal living. Manson taught his followers that they were the reincarnation of the original Christians and that the Romans were the establishment. He strongly implied that he was Christ and he often told a story envisioning himself on the cross with the nails in his feet and hands. So I can't even imagine like how people were like on these crazy drugs and this guy's telling you, oh yeah, like I, you know, I'm like Christ and I had my hands and feet nailed. like, yeah, okay, cool. If you say so. Rad, dude.
1: Dude, if they got, (laughs) could you imagine them like watching QVC? (laughs) <laughs> and they're like, you need this mixer. And they're like, I'll take one I'll in better. every color. It's perfect to mix the blood of my victims or some shit right now.
0: <laughs> All right. Foreshadowing for they're the future. Th- yeah, right? So um, Manson, uh, okay, let's see. Oh, yeah. So Manson taught his followers that they were the reincarnation of the original Christians and that the Romans were the establishment. And he strongly implied that he was Christ. And Oh, fuck. I just repeated that whole thing. Okay. Sometime around 1967, he began to use the alias Charles Willis Manson. He often said it very slowly, Charles Will is man's son. Trippy, right? Implying that his will was the same as that of the son of man.
1: Really quick. That Mm -hmm. reminds me. And I knew this when I said it the first time. Okay. For all my Harry Potter fans out there, that, that, the, Charles Will is man's Son," reminds me of in I think it's uh, I think it's the second movie when I could be wrong, maybe it's the first I don't know, when um, he finds Tom Riddle's notebook and it says, mm. "Tom Mar- Marvolo Riddle." and then the letters switch around and it says, "I am Lord Voldemort." That
0: was mind-blowing. Yeah, mind-blowing. Yeah. so. Manson's powerful manipulation allowed him opportunities to work with greats like Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys where they worked on music together and the Manson family lived on Wilson's property. Wilson ended up paying like $100,000 in medical uh, including things like medical bills for the women to treat their gonorrhea and fixing his uninsured cars due to people in the house wrecking it. So I guess after all of those bills, he's like, I'm tired of paying for this. He kicked him out and they moved to Spans or Span's movie ranch. And the women were servants to George Spann for a free stay, so they'd have sex with him. Um he had really poor eyesight, so they'd kind of be like his seeing eye women. Okay. Yeah. So you do then, you do sometimes. Yeah. Um, and especially in California yeah, Rent right. is not cheap <laughs> So they then at one point Moved to the Myers Barker's Ranch And I guess the property originally Was like one of the followers Family's properties And then Barker was given A golden album of the Beach Boys By Manson Which he had gotten from Wilson at one point mm-hmm. So they were just able He was able to finesse his way wow. To all these properties And get it for free And yeah it was he was living the life. And after listening to the Beatles, Manson explained to his family around a campfire on New Year's Eve that the social turmoil he had been predicting had also, had also been predicted by the Beatles. And the White Album songs he declared told it all, although in code. And in fact, he maintained, get this, that the album was directed at the family, an elect group that was being instructed to preserve the worthy from the impending disaster.
1: Oh, okay. Yes. No offense, but this album's about me. (laughs) Is that what you think? Uh, Well, you know what? I like to think that about um, every Shawn Mendes song. (laughs) I like to think he sings about me.
0: Not Cody Simpson? We'll post that picture uh, today, Throwback Thursday. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. We'll tell you guys about our obsession with Cody Simpson in another episode. Rebecca in the picture
1: looks exactly the same, and I look like a gremlin. (laughs) Like, it's not fair. Thank you for nothing, genetics. (laughs)
0: All right. All right. The family moved to a canary yellow home in Canoga Park which Manson called the Yellow Submarine, which is another Beatles reference, and their family members prepared for the impending apocalypse, which around the campfire Manson had termed Helter Skelter. I love how, I think you're looking up the picture, You're putting the picture oh, up now. Oh, my God. All right, so uh, then by February 1969, Man- uh, Manson's vision was complete, and the family created an album whose songs as subtle as those of the Beatles would trigger the predicted chaos. He believed that ghastly murders of whites by blacks would be met with retaliation and a split between racist and non-racist whites would yield white self-annihilation. Blacks' triumphs, as it were, would merely precede their being ruled by the family. The family would ride out the conflict in the bottomless pit, which was a secret city beneath Death Valley. Mm Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. So then the Manson family were involved in crimes, including first the Crow shooting, which was, um, the victim was Bernard Lots of Papa Crow. <laughs> lots, That's a, of Papa. lots of Papa Crow. And he was an African American drug dealer. And I guess Crow had responded with a threat to wipe out everyone at Spawn Ranch because he had been defrauded by them. Mm-hmm. And Manson then countered on July 1st, 1969, by shooting Crow at his Hollywood apartment. Okay. Then the next was the Hinman murder. And Manson had believed that Gary Allen Hinman, who was a music teacher and a PhD student at UCLA, was wealthy. And Manson employed some of his followers to convince Hinman to join the family so that he can you know, take over mm-hmm. some of his stuff, like stocks and properties. But after not cooperating, Hinman was then held hostage for two days, during which Manson showed up with a sword to slash his ear. Oh, and after that, a member stabbed Hinman to death on Manson's instruction. And I think the one that stabbed him was Tex Watson. Okay. They uh, then took Hinman's blood and wrote political piggy on the wall and drew a panther paw, which was a black panther symbol, mm-hmm. just stirring the pot. So ah. the next one I'm going to tell you about is one of the most famous murders in US history, which yeah. is the murders of Tate, Sebring, Folger, Parent, and Frykowski. So on August 8th, 1969, Tex Watson had Uh, was ordered to drive family members Susan Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to Melcher's former home at 150... It's actually... one. What is that number? 10050 Cielo Drive in Los Angeles and kill everyone there. The family members proceeded to kill the five people that were there, which included actress Sharon Tate, who was five months pregnant and her unborn child was killed, Jay Sabring, Abigail Folger and Wojciech Frykowski and and Stephen Parent Atkins wrote pig and blood on the front door as they left the murders created a nationwide sensation so that happened August 8th 1969 then August 9th of 1969 six family members which were included Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian Patricia Krenwinkel Leslie Van Van Houten, Van 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 Houten? Houten Van Houten Steve, and Steve Clem Grogan uh, drove out on Manson's orders. Manson was displeased by the panic of the victims at Cielo Drive, and Manson inc- accompanied the six to the next place to show them how to do it. So um, at the end of all this, Watson stabbed Leno LaBianca a total of 12 times with a bayonet. Holy shit. And when he had finished, Watson carved war on the man's exposed abdomen. Krenwinkel Krenwinkle began stabbing Rosemary LaBianca with a knife from the LaBianca kitchen, and heeding Manson's instruction to make sure each of the women played a part, Watson told Van Van Houten, right, yeah, to stab Mrs. LaBianca too. She did, stabbing her approximately sixteen times in the back and the exposed buttocks. Wow. Evidence showed that many of the of Mrs. LaBianca's forty one stab wounds had in fact been inflicted post mortem. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, that's just. That's just overkill. So while Watson cleared off the bayonet and showered, Krenwinkel wrote rise and death to pigs on the walls and helter-skelter on the refrigerator door, all in LaBianca's blood. So nine, uh, December 8th, 1969 comes Manson, Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Cassavian are indicted for the murders of Tate and her friends. The grand jury also indicts the five-plus Van, uh, Van Houten for the LaBianca murders. June 16, 1970 comes. The trial begins for Manson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, Glenn, Van Houten. Manson appears in court with an X carved on his forehead and he defends himself in court with the help of attorney Irving Canarak. January 15, 1971 comes. After a seven-month trial, the jury deliberates and the jury finds the defendant guilty on January 25th. March 29th, Manson, Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Van Houten received the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Watson's found guilty of the murders of seven people and is sentenced to death. But then, in 1972, Cal, uh, California abolishes the death penalty, and they're all—all uh, all the sentences are commuted to life in prison. Mm-hmm. Manson recently passed away in, ni- in 19, 2017. <laughs> um, he had, I think, colon cancer and just old age and stuff. Yeah. Passed he, away. Yeah. But He He had had a lot going on. Yeah, but I mean, even when he was put away, the interviews he had, he was always fucked up. He was just an evil, just born evil. (laughs) It makes you think, like, these cult leaders and stuff, do do you think that they kind of verify the statement, people are born evil? Ooh. I don't know. Stir the pot?
1: Stir the pot. Consider it stirred. No, I don't know. I mean... Some of them probably, yes. I think, it's, I think it depends. You yeah. know what I mean? Some people just come out shitty. Yeah, You for know sure. what I mean? But other people could be driven to it. They could, I don't know. It's a good question. That's uh, food for thought. Uh, if you have any ideas of your answer, email us at, at gmail.com.:
0: All right, guys. So that concludes our episode of Colts today. So thank you guys so much again for listening. If you have any stories, it could be of cults, you know, we will touch upon that again at some point down the line if it's something that's high in demand. If you have ghost stories, stories of reincarnation, anything, email us. Guardian Angel. Guardian angels. Premonition. Yes, yes. Please email us at justghoulythingspodcasts at gmail.com. <laughs> Almost at .com again, just as a website. Also, we made a Twitter page. Woo! It is at JGT Podcast. I couldn't put Just Gooly Things because the S at the end made the username too long. Just one singular, too long. Twitter, you're killing me here. But um, yeah, so yeah. if you want, follow us there. We'll follow you back. Follow us on Instagram at Just Podcast. We'll follow you back there. Check out the Facebook page, and I will link the Twitter to the Facebook page For as sure. well, in yeah. case. Yeah. We uh we want you guys to engage with us. You we want you to talk to us, tell us your stories, talk to other people that listen to our podcast and you know share ideas and share stories. We want it to be a safe community for everyone to talk about their experiences. Woohoo! So on that note, we will talk to you guys next week. Good- Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>